folks, freaks, and fans. Welcome to Crap Beer's only voice of reality. To the podcast with the guts to face failure in the beer industry with a smirk and a grin. To the place where we can share the honest truth of what really happens in the P&Ls and the spreadsheets of America's beer makers. Welcome to How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, the podcast. With each new season of the show, I've encouraged evolution, growth, and a warm embrace with change. Now over 40 episodes in, my guests and I have honed our focus and goals to make you the best you can be in your career. What you're about to experience is season five, 10 interviews with experienced operators that lived right through it. This season's guests will peel back the layers of bullshit and get right to the truth. The truth that the beer publications, the Brewers Association, and of course, those hypey ass breweries that act all successful on social media do not want you to know. That the majority of breweries in the US are not making any money at all and have absolutely no chance of ever doing so. But if you're looking for a roadmap to financial success in craft beer, then you've come to the right place. This season, we'll hear from breweries from Portland to Atlanta, past and present, to help teach you how not to start a damn brewery. The taproom was not enough to cover everything under the roof due to the slowdown in distribution. Now, if our distribution had remained the same, even as it did in 2019, in addition to the taproom, I'd still own a brewery right now. James Moriarty and the tale of his brewery should be a cautionary one. So many breweries start up with operators that know far less than James did. He brewed in multiple facilities for over a decade. He went to the Siebel Institute. He worked as an engineer assembling and starting up breweries, and only then did he leverage that experience to open Urban Brew Labs in Chicago. But even that resume wasn't enough to take his brewery into profitability. But James wouldn't go down without a fight. He pivoted, he struggled, he brewed, he raised money, and he restructured. Like all of us, he wanted his dream to succeed. But even closing his dream in August of 2022 didn't deter James from a career helping others open their breweries. In some ways, it strengthened his understanding of how the business of craft beer works. And doesn't. Now he, like all of my guests, knows how not to start a damn brewery. So here is the story of James Moriarty and Chicago's late Urban Brew Labs. If he were interested in anything his old dad was interested in, my son would say it's something like, y'all need to be fucking with PR. Your booze business is more than just an online profile. Fine, keep doing your limited can release and your meet the beer tender posts, but it's time to think bigger than just cheesy marketing. Better, more professional. Brittany Hanning has years of experience turning big ideas into targeted communication in the beverage alcohol business, and her PR firm, Made to Measure Communications, can tighten your image with expert services ranging from AI generation all the way to media relations. See, people in this industry love to talk about the importance of branding and media outreach, but don't kid yourself for a second. You need an expert to navigate that stuff. So go to the website at M2MCOMMS, M2MCOMS, look them up in San Francisco, or just ask me for Brittany's number. But seriously, stop screwing around and get your image right today. All right, James, welcome to the show. And much thanks for sharing all your insights and experiences. We got a lot to go over today, so I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me, and I look forward to you know helping others. Yeah, well, you you obviously have a unique story. So I'm compared to some of the other people I've interviewed. So I'm really interested in getting into it for a variety of reasons. But before we do that, it looks like to me you got your start kind of on the beer side back in like '07. So. Tell me how that goes. Most of the people that I've interviewed are in the tens. Um, I've got a guy I'm interviewing soon that was, you know, back in the nineties. But so, anyways, how, how'd you get into it back then? It's, it was a little stranger, I guess, in the mid two thousands than uh, than it is today. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought so, but it's it's been a whirlwind. I was in college and uh, graduating in 07, Started home brewing in my apartment. I did an internship where uh, my coworker was a home brewer. I didn't even know that was a possibility, <laughs> and uh, I thought that was the coolest coolest idea ever you know i was talking about it the christmas of 05 my uh my mom actually bought herself and me a uh 
homebrew kit from uh, Bed Bath and Beyond, uh, <laughs> not the Mister Beer. It was even more. And um, I was li- I was in um, New Hampshire. She was in Chicago. So over you know over the course of you know whatever January whatever it was, we both brewed um, our batches you know separately, but at the same time uh, that way you know we could uh, kind of collaborate on the results. Yeah, after about a month um, of waiting and just hoping not knowing what to expect cracked open the the first little plastic bottle and it was foul it was terrible (laughs) but i proved the concept um that it is possible to brew at home and then so this coworker was kind of in the back of my head he actually homebrewed on a regular basis and and supposedly it was better than mine (laughs) so it kind of got me down the path of wanting to improve so i kind of looked up homebrewing and found out that there's homebrew shops turns out there was one down the street for me in uh, ashland new hampshire or meredith so I, I stopped by there one day and uh and then the owner he was super nice and um kind of walked me through building my first kit it turns out we lived in the same apartment building he lived a uh, floor above me so he walked me through the first uh first batch it was a uh, cascade pale ale and uh, kind of like a Sierra Nevada, it was phenomenal. I mean, well, <laughs> relatively speaking, uh, the first attempt was just that terrible. Better than the Bed but, Bath uh, Beyond uh, beer, right? Yeah, certainly, hundred percent. You know that really that put the bug in me. I just dove into the home brewing as hard as I could. Researched everything, spent all my money on like any little gadget that I could. It was kind of getting a little serious and ridiculous in my uh, studio apartment. Yeah, I had, I don't know, it, it just captivated me. I, I transferred colleges across the street from my um, my final college was Concord Brewing in uh, Lowell, Massachusetts. I didn't know anything about them. I knew that they were a small brewery, so I just shot them a, a, a phone call one day and I was like, hey, you know what? Like, I would like to learn more. I don't even know how one goes about becoming a brewer or working in a brewery. The head brewer at the time, Dave Wilson, uh, he's like, yeah, come on by. You know, we'll, we'll give you a tour and talk about what we do and how we got here. So we did that, or I did that. I was like, man, I would, I, I would love to become more involved somehow. And he's like, well, he's like, we're not hiring, but you know, we, we do accept volunteers on canning days or bottling days back then. <laughs> And, you know, you can, you know, have a beer while you, while you're, while you're helping, but, um, we don't pay and, uh, it's long days. And I was like, awesome. I'm in. So I did the first balling run with them. It was, it was so much fun. I have a mechanical engineering background, you know, so seeing the balling line, uh, in operation, I was just captivated. Was mechanical engineering your original career path that you were going to go through, like through college and everything? Was that the plan? <laughs> that was the plan, but I... You know, I, I, I joke, what do you call someone that got a D in med school? You call them a doctor because they still passed. Uh, that was kind of engineer. This. Oh, man. I, I went in with it with the idea of becoming an engineer, but I didn't have the math uh, strength to really excel in the in the field. It turns out years later, I, I'm a better technician than I am an engineer. You know, I'm, I'm more self-aware. But, you know, regardless, you know, I, I pushed through and I lived in tutoring and <laughs> got myself through it, but um, it was awful. And uh, I definitely did not want to pursue it as a career. And, you know, I didn't really know if brewing was really a, uh, a career-worthy choice either. Um, it was just so new. I didn't know anyone who who made that jump. Or um, certainly none of my friends were, were looking to become brewers. Um, I was kind of just 
in my own boat. This brewery, Concord Brewing, you know, they they were tremendous hosts and mentors. They uh, basically every week I was volunteering. They were teaching me new new skills such as cleaning kegs, spilling kegs eventually cleaning tanks to helping on brew days you know slowly i just became more and more independent you know upon graduation (laughs) they offered me a part-time job i accepted (laughs) because i'm an idiot (laughs) well i didn't know two things at the time when i accepted the position one uh the head brewer was leaving and two the owner was going to be um closing the business at the end of the summer (laughs) so it was really a short-term part-time gig however I had a great relationship with the head brewer, and when he went to um, his new brewery, I kind of followed along with him and got a part-time gig at his new brewery in addition to maintaining my part-time gig at Concord. So between the two breweries, I was full-time, but yeah, I was bouncing between the two every week, which, you know, at the time, it was frustrating. But um, looking back on it, it, that was a great opportunity because I got to learn different brewing techniques and uh, philosophies at the same time. Uh, So I didn't really get pigeonholed into one way of thinking and then just carrying that on throughout my career. Uh, Concord Brewing, they they did close at the end of the summer. The owner asked me to help them sell the equipment and basically prepare the, the space for for closing you know that's a horrible way to start a career but um it was it was a good experience you got to meet a lot of people through the sale the the selling process um what i didn't know also in addition was that there were silent partners involved and the silent partners they wanted to keep the brewery going they couldn't afford to buy out principal owner so when the business was officially closed these partners approached me and said, hey, we want to reopen under a new name. And I was like, you realize you just sold all the equipment. <laughs> At a discount. <laughs> like, yeah, well, I was like, this is not a great plan. But I, I was young, eager. You know, they asked me to stay on. I'm like, you realize just a, like a year ago, I was just a volunteer. Now you want me as your as your brewer. I was like, I'm not comfortable with that. I want to try at the opportunity, but you got to know, like, I'm not experienced. So they put me through Siebel to help kind of give me confidence in um, my brewing knowledge. While I, I like having that credential, I was far too young in my career to uh, appreciate the education that, that Siebel is was giving me everything was just above my head i mean i was 21 you know um i didn't take away from seawall as much as i could have you know i got the certificate and i got to carry that around forever so there's a, there's value to that what do you think that says about like the the lesson there for like a home brewer who didn't even go there who's just brewing for a different brewery um as far as like what they don't know like that that body of knowledge yeah so Today, there's so many more educational options out there that are geared towards brewing that cater more to uh, the smaller scale breweries. And I think those would have more value than, you know, say a home brewer jumping right into a full-fledged program such as Siebel, where Siebel's accustomed to, I mean, they do educate everyone of all brewery sizes, but their bread and butter are is like the larger brewery. When you're learning about cereal cookers and mash filters, that's not something that uh, you know an average craft brewery is gonna 
is going to be working with. Like, I appreciated the background knowledge that, that the program taught me. I don't think it made me a better or worse brewer. You know, I think as long as you're continuing to read and educate yourself about the craft, I don't think you need a, a formal paper to validate yourself as a brewer. You know, it's it's all about, at the end of the day, do you have a quality product that's clean, repeatable, and something that, that your audience actually appreciates and comes back for? That's the validation. My job now is I commission and install brewery equipment, mostly brew houses and canning lines. I would say probably 90% of our customers are startup breweries, and of those uh, startups, maybe I don't know, 60% of them, you know, are, are brewers who are jumping into a commercial setting for the first time. My job is to train these, these home brewers to scale up and operate a commercial brew house. You know, I think a lot of guys uh, find it intimidating and other guys, they take the reins and just run with it. Everyone's own like personal drive and, and confidence level. It, that really has a lot to, to do with how successful they're going to be. Even now, like if, if I see a new process or technique from a brewer, I'm going to ask them about it. Like I want to know everything about it and just keep learning because I think the worst thing that you can do is become overconfident in yourself and you pigeonhole yourself into just brewing one certain way. And you know, at the end of the day, your, your product is going to reflect that and you're not going to be as adaptive to market trends and, and what your consumer experiences are. Like if you think you're the best brewer in the world, yet ev every beer that goes across the bar is returned half filled, <laughs> you know, that should be a, a red flag that maybe you're not as good as, as you think you are. Well, you had, like I uh, said, a, a fairly unique resume in the sense that from the time it looks like you started as a intern or whatever, uh, to the time you opened your brewery was about a decade and like five to six different breweries, which is the way it should go, in my opinion. Then you have experience. It's varied experience. You've worked on multiple facilities, different brew houses with different assistant brewers, different bosses. Like you just have an understanding of the industry that a first timer doesn't. And so that was one of the questions I was going to ask is like, what do you think you brought from that when you opened your brewery? And then also, how the fuck did you wait a decade where everyone else can't wait eight minutes? Yeah. So I kept working for these smaller breweries and, and I'm too, I'm too driven. Like I just want to keep advancing my own career. You know, when you work at these smaller breweries, there's the assistant brewer, head brewer, owner, like, and sometimes the head brewer and the owner are the same person. Yeah. So there's only, there's only so, uh, so high you can go up on the ladder before you have to jump ship and, and find new opportunities. And that's that's kind of what drove my brewery count on my resume is I kept wanting to do more and more. I knew eventually I wanted ownership and I, I, I took little tidbits of information from every brewery that I worked for and and just tried to build this resume of, of knowledge and uh, that I could eventually use on my own for my own. In fairness, I did try and open a brewery in 2012 in Chicago and I just kept running into, um, I was working with a bank. I was pre-approved for my SBA loan. Everything was looking great. However, the, the bank needed the equipment as collateral for the loan and my landlord since the equipment was already in place a landlord didn't want to give up you know his first access to the assets should my 
should I default on my lease? I'm like, well, it's not your equipment. It's it's mine. It's just in your space. And we just couldn't get past that. Eventually, the bank just had to move on. They were just like, well, if he's not signing over his his rights, then, you know, we can't issue a loan. So I did I did try uh, opening a brewery in 2012, and I took those lessons, too. When I went back and, and started my second brewery, well, technically third, in uh, 2018, I didn't not try. <laughs> <laughs> this turns out, as a brewer, don't have a whole lot of capital at my disposal. So okay. you really need to find good, you know, I wasn't the money man. I wasn't bringing money to the table. I was bringing experience and hopefully quality product. So since you weren't bringing the money, was that something that you looked for to have somebody on the other side and that was more the business person that could handle some of those like, you know, distributor contracts, um, you lease negotiations or whatever? Or did you kind of like the rest of us just sort of slug through it? At least for the 2018, the most recent brewery experience, I started the brewery with family money and then, well, an SBA loan. I was the, I was the CEO, the brewer, the janitor, the you know, maintenance crew, everything. And I slugged through, yeah, all of our, our leases, um, our, our bank loans. You know, I just couldn't sign anything just because I was a, an LLC member, but I wasn't a managing member. Well, again, I'm not a, I wasn't a money guy. So I had to become an employee of the brewery because it was also relocating the family at the same time. And we, we couldn't secure a mortgage. Uh, with me being an owner, I had to be an employee um, so that I could garnish a W-2 for the uh, for the banks. Starting the brewery right off the bat was a little messy in that sense because I was an I was an owner yet I you know I I couldn't be publicly or I was publicly facing as the owner, but on the back end and the, all the financial documents I was I was just an employee. It was it was me and my mom uh, really. And she was just, you know, obviously moral support, but um, she wasn't involved in the day-to-day. When we first started the day-to-day operations, it was just myself and my wife and then our sales rep. So it was the three of us for, for a good while. And then um, eventually I brought on an assistant brewer and we, we just slowly just grew. But yeah, I did everything. That's pretty normal that uh, how it always works. And that's one of the arguments that I've made many times is that what ends up happening at the smaller scale, especially that under thousand barrel thing, is that there's just not enough revenue to pay individual specialists to do each of these different roles. And so there's always a lot of overlap. And unfortunately, that ends up burning the candle at both ends and a lot of times making one job or the other have to suffer. And you know, when, when one takes over. Unfortunately, I've seen that be brewing. Sometimes it has suffered, but not always. But yeah, I actually want to ask you a little bit about your mom, how that got involved, because again, that was unique and different. But let me uh, take a quick break, slug down a pizza, and I'll be right back. Yeah. Do you guys remember when the phone company used to print all the phone numbers on the internet and then send it to your house in some book large enough to knock someone the hell out? That's how I feel about fermenting beer in closed tanks without AccuBrew. So the industry can be so much better by just being digital. AccuBrew is simple to install, simpler to use, and one of those how in the hell do we ever get along without it products. For less than the case of beer a month, you'll get real-time fermentation feedback on current gravity, temperature, and even clarity. 
If anything is slowing down or out of the range you set for your recipes, it'll alert you, your brewer, and whoever the hell gets paid to fix it. Making better beer in 2023 is not an option. Install AccuBrew as soon as you possibly can, check improving the quality of the beer off your list, and get back to figuring out how on earth to be profitable in your beer business. Drop your mash paddle, go to AccuBrew.io, enter Dan Brewery at checkout for 10% off your sensor, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why sell for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcyclehelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. All right, so I'm actually really intrigued to hear your, your mom actually has experience in the industry based on your website, right? No, 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 no. I thought it said um, she had five years craft beer experience, whatever that means. So, Wait, what? Does it? Maybe I'm making that piece up. <laughs> No, she, I mean, her background is is finances. She's a um, financial planner. She was a, a fixed income research analyst for years. You know, she she helped with um, definitely the developing the reforma for the business plan. You know, and and just you know overseeing our, our loan documents and make sure that you know we're, we weren't going to get killed in interest payments and you know and that we weren't basically double dipping our assets as collateral big picture wise she kept us clean in terms of uh, the finances my wife kept the books clean on a daily basis and made sure that everyone was getting paid as has needed and um and that we weren't overpaying for like our co2 or something we we had a fixed uh a fixed capital like we we put everything into it so we had to watch our cash flow very carefully just cuz there wasn't more to contribute and there wasn't anything else that we could collateralize for additional loans it's kind of a do or die i don't know if you want me to get into kind of like our early days and struggles i don't know just the the roadblocks or the, the bumps in the road that we hit and had to overcome. Yeah, so I kind of want to hear about the startup piece. I know you had one advantage, obviously, and let's let's definitely talk about that. But for sure, the roadblocks that you experienced, unfortunately, seem to be kind of universal for a lot of people. So in right. a lot of ways, we're trying to say, hey, dude, this can happen. Let's make sure that doesn't happen to you. So listen to the show. But one thing that you, I hope, was an advantage, and I'm curious to hear, is that you went into a space that was initially a brewery. They moved out. Was the size correct for what you needed? Were the drains already there and everything was just sort of like plug and play? Or did you experience some struggles there too? Yeah. Yeah. Excellent point. So me having worked for a um, brewery equipment supplier for three years at this at this point when we decided to open the brewery, uh, my job was designing layouts, 
uh, working with the customers, contractors on installing all the utilities and equipment, um, and then eventually coming out, commissioning the equipment, training the staff on on operating, and um, just overall technical support. Well, you know, after installing, you know, 100 plus breweries all across the U.S. and internationally, it was very apparent to me that I did not want to start from from scratch every construction budget it just forget about it just pick a number in the dark and you're probably gonna be closer <laughs> to the real number let's make some uh, shit up <laughs> right like you know take the number that you want and just triple it and then take the time that you know say like hey i want to open up in february of 2024 Okay, well, that's going to be, you know, December of 25 or 24. It's uh, construction is ugly. You know, it's you're relying on everyone's lead times, permits, you know, so, you know, the cities get involved into labor issues. It's a mess. Construction is a mess. Having gone through this so many times, I knew that is not what I wanted to do. That's not how I wanted to blow my budget. I wanted a facility that was basically turnkey. It just so happened that uh, a brewery space was opening up in Chicago. The brewery was expanding to a larger facility and basically, (laughs) ironically, needed to sell their old brewery to pay for their construction on the new brewery. And so I looked at the space. I knew the neighborhood and I actually knew the brewery. I thought it was going to be perfect. Uh, It was a 15 barrel production and a style setup. There was no tap room. It was in the heart of the city. So I thought, hey, you know what? We can allocate some space within the brewery for taproom because we weren't going to do full-blown production. So we didn't need space for a cannon line or, or bottle line or whatever. And we had square footage to eat up for a taproom. Well, so we go through the, the business plan writing for this model. Basically a taproom only with limited draft distribution. And we were going to self, self-distribute. So went through the business plan, got all the finances uh, together, and bought the facility from this brewery and then probably it took about three months for like rebranding kind of um just general like maintenance overhaul like just strip down their their heat exchanger there was some glycol leaks you know take care of that their water treatment wasn't the best so installed better water treatment systems basically sprucing up but i mean certainly a lot cheaper than had i just built out a new brewery with new equipment so basically and, everything was there. They just moved out and kept left the equipment. And I'm sure it took some things, but for the most part, you could walk in and do a little work and start brewing. Yeah, for the most part, it was a true turnkey uh, solution. And I was very grateful for that. So within three months of closing on the, the sale, we were brewing our first batch. ETB, uh, it was already an existing brewery. It was just mm-hmm. a change of ownership. That was an easy breeze. The state, uh, we didn't have on-site or on-premise consumption. So um, being licensed through the state, we were only delayed by a month because in Illinois, there's a 45-day posting period when you intend to self-distribute. Uh, you're not allowed to produce and sell within that that window. So otherwise, um, we were in a great position to start generating revenue because we didn't have the build out time. But, you know, we, and we more or less like 
became a brewery overnight. We didn't have a market following. No one knew we were even coming. A lot of these guys that are in construction, they're generating a fan base six, nine months ahead of opening. We didn't. We just said, hey, we're brewing. And then natural question, everyone's got, oh, uh, when's the taproom opening? When can I come to the brewery? Like, eh, you can't. It's production only. <laughs> and we were just selling kegs, draft um to our local accounts, we were paying the bill. It was... What was the choice there? Did, did you not do the tasting room because it doesn't already exist in the existing facility? Or was it there was some reason that you didn't want it when you first started? The tap room was goal number one. We were brewing just to generate revenue and income. Get started with what you have and then do it later. Right. But we were working with an architect at the same time because we, you know, going over the plans and then going through the plan review process and permitting process. Everything takes forever. This is why I didn't want construction. Unless we were going to sprinkle the sprinkler the entire building. You know, we had... We had 4,000 square feet out of, I want to say the building's 10,000 square feet, and we would have had to sprinkler everyone. Did you even get a quote for that, or just, I can't even imagine? Yeah, my architect, he he had a um, a decent number, and he was probably right. I mean, he was looking at 100K. That's just not even for water. I'm not doing that. It's obscene, yeah, especially in a brewery where most things aren't flammable anyways. Like, it doesn't make any difference. So the city basically said, hey, you know what? Unless you build a fire rated room for the tap room, this is a no go. We kind of looked at the fire rated rooms. It was just going to eat up too much real estate with the double walls and whatnot. And it would have, it just took away from the experience of being in the brewery. Like, you wouldn't be able to see the equipment. It, it would have just been a room. So that wasn't ideal. But we did end up building a small shop. In the brewery, it was just a to-go bottle shop. You mm-hmm. get fill your growlers, whatever. Relatively speaking, I mean, since we didn't have retail dollars at this point, the little retail dollars that we were bringing in from the shop, it really helped. And not only that, I think the the stronger value was the marketing power. So now people could actually come to us, just get to know us uh, in sample products and whatnot. Because, you know, we were, we were still giving tastings. We were just, we just couldn't sell you a pint. That helped our draft sales because now people were seeking us out. But on top of this planning of a taproom within the brewery, we had a tenant next to us. It was a, it was a distillery who they expressed their intentions on leaving uh, within a year. And so we, we knew we had this space available to us. It was another 4,000 square feet. It had like curb appeal and it was far more suitable for a tap room than anything that we could build within the brewery. I was like, okay, a year, we can hold out for a year. That's, you know, we're doing fine. We're paying the bills. We're, we're slowly growing. Um, all the numbers were looking good. And now in the back pocket, we had this, this future opportunity. Well, that was 2019. Their lease ran up in August of 2019. They then switched to a month-to-month model with the landlord because they were building up their, <laughs> their new facility and the city was delaying their construction. I hate construction. Yeah, they were going month to month. It was agonizing for me because I'm just like, okay, I need need to move forward. I need to move forward. Started looking at alternative locations. Uh, yet another brewery uh, was closing, and I did technically buy that brewery with a restaurant, but we had to go through a special use permit process with uh, the city. At the time, it was the most agonizing process I've 
ever gone through. Why'd you have to do that? Because if it was an existing brewery, was it because you had a production license and they had a brew pub license or why would you have to do it? More or less, yes. So the Chicago, Illinois, the local government uh, issues the liquor licenses. In Chicago, there's two liquor licenses. There's Tavern and then there's uh, Incident. So Tavern is basically... No rules. You can sell whatever you want. You can be open whenever you want, 4 a.m. It's nice, but at the same time, like, neighborhoods did not appreciate tavern licenses. So the aldermen weren't really issuing those, those licenses. You couldn't allow patrons under 21 to be in your facility, in, on your premise. Hmm. So, like, we couldn't be family friendly or anything. It was just, um, it, that was not the license that we wanted. We wanted the incidental. So the incidental, basically, the liquor sales are incidental to another activity. We did not intend to brew at that facility. And actually, the kitchen, we were looking to sublease out. So then, essentially, what we would have been is just a taproom-only location. Well, the city is like, well, you need an incidental activity. I was like, well, technically brewing is our incidental activity. You know, like not on that, not at that location. And I was like, okay. So we were able to go through a process of um, basically an exemption. So a special use. This process dragged out forever. It was an awful ordeal. You know, you had to basically prove who you were as a human. And you needed the blessing of every neighbor uh, within 500 feet of the location it was long it was drawn out fortunately it was drawn out to the point of covid and we wrote in our lease agreement that if we couldn't secure our uh, special use permit that the lease was null and void we were not going to be taking the space covid hit and we're just like yeah we're we're not going to pursue this license anymore so the city is like okay well you're banning the license we're not going to issue the permit i was like Excellent. So then I, I got out of our lease agreement for the new space right at the start of COVID. Oh, man, the, that landlord was pissed. <laughs> but we crossed our T's and dotted our I's. We were not going to get stuck with a lease if we couldn't operate in that space. Yeah, so got out. At this point, Koval uh, was the distillery next to us. They were still month to month. However, at this point, they just used it as like a curbside pickup location. You know, we were able to kind of like, kind of work with them on being like, hey, you know what? We really want to initiate construction uh, in the space. I know you're technically still here, but, you know, would you allow us to do all the walkthroughs with our landlord and, and architect and contractors? And yeah, I mean, they still fully intend on leaving. So during the, the peak of the COVID shutdown in Chicago, um, we used that time to plan out the tap room, initiate the plan reviews. Fortunately, the city was still operating. Caval officially moved out in August of 2020. Immediately, um, I had permits issued. My landlord became my contractor. And I will say, like even to this day, I have a great relationship with my landlord. And I, the brewery would not have existed as long as it did without my landlord. Um, he was essentially a business partner because he worked with us throughout the whole process of trying to take over the space next door. He became my contractor so that I didn't have to pay for a GM. He had a, um, a contractor's license. His maintenance crew became my subs. So I saved a fortune on building out the tap room by utilizing my relationship with my landlord. We built out the tap room all through the, the winter of 2020, 2020. 
one one. You know, Chicago was still in this shutdown state. We weren't feeling a whole lot of pressure to open, which was great because there was nothing we could do. <laughs> well, and then things started opening up in March and of. 21 and we're just like oh okay now we're anxious now we got to be open Ugh. the city just took forever to to schedule inspections and and finalize the on-premise liquor license from march to july we were just waiting on the city it's awful the city of chicago is terrible to work with so we finally opened july 26th of 2021 <laughs> july 27th no yeah, we opened the 26th. July 25th, the city issued the indoor masking and vaccination requirement. No, the vaccination came a couple months after, sorry. But the indoor masking. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, we're trying to have a grand opening here that we've been waiting for for years. And now the city is like kind of like putting this fear into consumers not to go into tap rooms and stuff. But needless to say, we had a phenomenal turnout on our opening week. It was real money. It was awesome. It, yeah, it felt awesome. And then not only that, but you could actually finally share a pint with um, we had regulars even in the bottle shop and uh, now we can actually share pints with them and it just turned into a, a true like community experience it was awesome all through 2021 we just kept seeing month over month growth in, in our revenue and heads through the door everything was positive it was great and then well winter of 22 especially january of january and february if you live in chicago you don't want to go outside so Going to a tap room is just not, not not a priority. Those months were terrible, but everyone in the industry, you know, they tell you, like, hey, you know what? Just save up for January and February because they're awful. And, um, Which you couldn't do because you only opened in July, right? Yeah, it was it was a little tight, but we did persevere and push through. I think we were on the early side of, of seeing what detriment like saturation can have we i was our brewery is one of seven breweries on my street within a mile and a half stretch i had a brewery right across the street from me you know there was no shortage of breweries in my neighborhood which you know has its pluses and minuses after talking with everyone you know because even when we were planning on opening this tap room everyone was talking about like like oh just wait until like wait until march you know like you, you're not gonna believe the numbers i was like i I can't wait. Hmm. And then March hit and it was just like, really? This is what we're looking forward to? And talking to all the other breweries, they're like, yeah, we don't know what's going on. Like, we're down. And I'm like, yeah, this is not, this is not comforting. In addition to the taproom, like we certainly weren't at capacity. Like we Friday through Sunday, like we were killing it. And that was certainly enough to carry carry over, you know, the subpar days for the rest of the week. The taproom was doing really well, um, all things considered. What happened though, in addition to in 2021, every brewery switched to a canning model because you had to in order to survive. What happened was we flooded our retailers. You know, the major retail retailer like chain in illinois benny's beverage each location would buy you know 10 plus cases every week which was great but over the course of 21 those numbers just started dropping it had nothing to do with our product specifically it was that everyone was jumping into the canning game and now Benny's is just flooded with all these can options you know they wanted to spread the love to everyone so you know Applaud them for that. You know, they are a retailer, 
but it just it took away the bigger pieces of the pie you know like you're getting just smaller and smaller shelf space and obviously draft was essentially dead you know our can prices were through the roof you don't make any money on cans anyways that's a volume game for sure Um, Were you mobile canning at this point? No, I was mobile canning 2019 and 2018, 2019. My mobile canner was actually, they purchased a canning line from my old employer. So I was familiar with the the line. They wanted to get out of the business. It wasn't really what they had envisioned, you know, because working with other people's product is horrible, miserable. So they ended up just leaving the canning line and DPAL in my brewery. And I, you know, I paid uh, like $400 a month um, as like rental, you know, which was phenomenal. I, I essentially got a, a free canning line. So no, we, we were canning on our own. And then that, I mean, that definitely saved it for sure for 2020. Distribution was just tanking. What, and, what year is this that it started tanking? Like during COVID or slowly after? I would say 21. So 2020, oddly enough, so we didn't have a tap room in 2020, but we had the bottle shop and we self-distributed and we had cans. We actually had our best year ever in 2020 because all of the breweries around me had to switch to my model. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I've already pushed through this for two years. I got this. And uh, and I was able to capitalize on it. Um, we, we did home delivery. Everything was already canned. So it was it was easy. I want to dig into that a little bit more, but let's take a quick break. I'll be right back. And when I do, I want to ask you a little bit about how you did that. Yeah, yeah. At this point during COVID, your numbers were up. Mine were as well. That was also the record year for my brewery. It's also the, the year before I sold it and got the fuck out. But um, so did you have the mobile canners canning line in your facility then or were you mobile canning still at that point? Nope. They ducked out in late 2019. So oh. I got lucky. Yeah. Good timing. Yeah. So you had, and you had already kind of done canning. So there was, was there a little bit of a learning curve for you managing, you know, the sanitation, the pressures, all that kind of shit, but you, did you kind of know what you were doing? No. Um, actually I helped the mobile canner, um, <laughs> learn how to, so no, um, I was no stranger to packaging. I had a cask line at my brewery in Florida. I wasn't one of the engineers for the can line. I was helping our company test and develop, further develop the line more anecdotally. No, canning was was no stranger to me. Did you see a difference? Like, so every brewery kind of works with what works on draft versus what works in package and what actually does volume in each of those. We haven't talked much about what your lineup was, but from what I can tell, correct me if I'm wrong, but it looks like you made solid beer styles well, as opposed to a bunch of brownie batter stouts. But what did work for you as far as the lineup? Uh, and how I guess maybe that that evolved during COVID too. Like what? How did it evolve? Me personally, I'm a huge IPA fan. I mean, that's my go-to style. But as a brewery owner uh, and brewer, just because I, you know, IPAs are my bread and butter, that was not what sold for us. We didn't have the double hazy IPA, you know, hype that other breweries had. And especially if you go into a package format, if you don't have like that cult-like following for your IPAs, don't put them in cans. It's just going to turn into a shelf turd. And then when someone does eventually buy that IPA can, it's going to be a terrible experience for both the consumer and for the brewery when that consumer reaches out on social media. And potentially the retailer. And, and to the retailer, yeah. IPAs did really well in the tap room when we had control the the freshness of the product. But for us, what really did well in cans was... Um, uh, lighter styles like um, uh, we had a Kolsch 
um, that did really well. We had um, a honey blonde ale. You know, we did have a scotch ale. We tried to fill in the areas that um, other breweries were just kind of ignoring because they weren't like the bigger sellers. Because of that void that was created, we were able to satisfy that. And then we got into fruited sours. And I would say like we couldn't can enough of the fruited sours. It was great. I mean, it was fun. Um, it was rewarding to need to package these fruited sours like every day. But that's kind of like the most expensive beer you're going to put into a can other than like a pastry stout or whatever. Well, I was going to um, next question is what your margins looked like on those. And so I just happens no, to a lot of people where your, your flagship ultimately ends up being something you're like, oh shit, we didn't really, price points don't make sense. I can't get the return on the investment. And now the tank's tied up making that and it can't make the other things that made me money. Did you experience something like that? A little bit. Yeah. We tried to control, we kept, we came out with different fruited options um, under different names. We didn't create like a series or anything. We kept different names and we did that in a sense to kind of control the demand so that we didn't get stuck growing the same fruited sour week after week that was just going to kill us in price. So we did look at, hey, you know what? What fruit can we get a little cheaper this month? Do you recall which one was and the then, best? Like w- which fruit was the best value? So we did a, um, a cranberry lime. Goza, actually. No one buys lime and no one buys cranberry. You know, so they were they were fairly cheap at the time. I haven't looked at prices in a while, but um, we did well with that beer. But again, like all these, we treated the packaging as marketing um, to drive people to the tap room because that's really where you make any money. And then, you know, I'd say towards the end, we were doing like 80% in draft and, you know, 20% in cans and just to control that cost too because... You made the choice to limit it. You don't mean you don't mean that the market stopped buying the cans, but you limited it for uh, profitability. No, we yeah, we we definitely had to limit it. We did put constraints on the retailers, said like, hey, you know what? If you wanted this fruit sour, you got to buy another case of another style. I would say most retailers were accepting of that. I don't think that hurt us overall. Just volume was down for everyone. I don't view us putting constraints on the retailer. I don't think that hurt us. We were going to be hurting regardless because if they just bought all the fruit and sours, we wouldn't make any money anyway. So so I was told, and I haven't researched yet, but I was told recently that there is potential legislation. I don't know if it's at the federal level or maybe just here in Texas at the state level that uh, is looking to make that illegal, that you can't. Technically, you're incentivizing the retailer to purchase something specific, no different than if you're giving them a dollar off a case or whatever. And, and that is distinctly illegal, although incentivizing in this way has, has been done a hundred times. It's sort of gotten to the spotlight, I guess. And, and I think that there was the, the Blanton's thing. Blanton's is the one that did it. You have to buy so much Buffalo Trace. That's what I was hearing. So you had to buy so much Buffalo Trace to be able to qualify to get a Blanton's. And that apparently there's legislation to potentially prevent that. Yeah, Goose Island did the same thing with their um, the Bourbon County. I get it, but at the same time, like retailers, a lot of them don't view us as business partners. You know, we're just a commodity to them. If they don't work with us, then they make it really difficult on us to succeed because they are the the last interface between us and the, the ultimate consumer. If the retailer isn't doing their part in selling, then it hurts us because our IPA is going to sit on the shelf for six, nine months 
and the retailer is not going to do anything about it. You know, they're just going to sell it. And it's like, well, that's a horrible experience, you know, for the consumer. And, you know, so incentivizing the retailer, it, it does help create that relationship where it'd be like, hey, you know what? You scratch our back, we scratch yours. And it works negatively in the sense that if you don't have that relationship already with the brewery and there's no means of, of generating that relationship, then, yeah, that's a um, unfair advantage that's being created by the brewery. We weren't large enough or in a position where we would say no to a, to a retailer. It was just um, the retailers that we knew were pushing volume. It's like, okay, well, you're pushing one lane, and we really we need help in you know spreading this, spreading the love a little bit, you know. And so I don't know. It's um ugly topic for sure. Oh, there's definitely a right answer. At the end of the day, I would always err on the side of let a business do what they need to do, and if the retailer doesn't like it, they don't have to carry you. I mean, I, I, mean, I don't know. I, I don't see why the legislation has to be there, but yeah, I mean, kind of in that same boat. I've seen some breweries, specifically in Chicago, where, yeah, like, unless you're known for for being a craft beer retailer or centric retailer, you're not getting this product. I'm like, mm, that's, I mean, it's the chicken or the egg, you know, scenario. It's like, well, how do I become a craft beer destination if I can't buy craft beer? We kind of saw that happen a little bit in Austin, too, especially back in the heyday where, Every freaking gas station was doing 750 milliliter bombers and like imported, you know, esoteric crazy shit. And guess what? A lot of that's still on the shelf decade later. <laughs> they didn't figure out how to get rid of it because they just didn't have that yeah. clientele. Like, right? Like a few people a week, sure, they drop by and like, oh, it's cool. The gas station XYZ's got the latest release and they'd run around town and grab it. But that died pretty quickly. And so I guess there's that piece too, right? Like if you give it to a, a retailer that's not going to present it well or it becomes a shelf turd you don't win so all right yeah let's talk a little bit about without kind of looking at the chart obviously of the sales numbers but what covid was a, your best year what were some of the great years like was it pretty much from 17 to 20 was growth um, did you have some hiccups along the way and then um, after that, we'll talk about kind of what happened after that, I guess, on the downturn. So. Well, so we we officially opened in 2018. 18, um, it was a slow start struggle because, again, we didn't have any market presence, you know, to, to start with. We didn't have a tap room for people to get to know us. You know, we, we just kept at it and we attended every event that we could, even if it was, it was not financially advantageous to us. Uh, up front, it was just it was a true like grassroots push in um in growth and success. Uh, by by late 2018, early 2019, I was able to get a couple sales reps who were actually really effective. I mean, they just killed it. They did a great great job. That's what I'm not. I'm not sales. If I went into a retailer trying to sell my beer, I'd probably sell another brewery's uh, brand. You know, <laughs> like, like, oh, hey, uh, yeah, I don't have uh, Imperial Stout, but hey, uh, <laughs> uh, this brewery does. And all of a sudden, like, they're buying that beer. I'm like, damn it. So I'm not sales. I Yeah, by the end of 2019, 20, sorry, end of 2018, um, I finally had, like, a, a really strong sales team. Uh, in place. And again, we self-distributed. So they doubled at their own delivery driver. That became kind of an issue by mid-2019 is um, they started cannibalizing the, their own opportunity. So like you know, the days that 
they would go out selling and then uh, but then they would have to turn around and spend the rest of the week delivering what they sold rather than selling additional accounts um we did bring on a delivery driver in 2019 things were clicking we um we were getting momentum we weren't stressing as much month to month you know we knew this tap room was going to be expensive you know that was kind of like in the back of the mind like shoot you know we're gonna have to raise capital somehow to to pay for this it was all positive it was it was it was fun actually in 2019 i did start looking for investors to help raise that capital for the taproom. And, um, you know, I was able to grab a couple guys that um, believed in, in me and supposedly the, the brewery. Hmm. <laughs> you know, they, with, with their um, contribution, now we had a nest egg. We had money in our back pocket to actually work with. So you brought uh, on yeah. some investors around that time frame to help with the expansion of the tasting room? That was the intent. They were remote investors though they weren't involved in the day-to-day operations um which i really wanted a partner you know at this time i'm still doing everything myself i was still brewing i was still packaging just just dealing with the the day-to-day grind of some phone call is gonna come in someone wants something i don't know but i don't know i wanted more of a business partner you know just kept pushing on eventually brought on a, an assistant brewer and that alleviated a lot of my day-to-day production needs it was very helpful not necessarily salary that i wanted to take on <laughs> yeah it it was it was needed by the end of 2019 i was at 1500 barrels um my goal for 2020 was to potentially break the 2500 uh, Mark, with our with our model, basically thirty five hundred barrels, we would have been profitable. Basically, looking for growth at that point, we weren't profitable yet in twenty nineteen. But we were paying our bills, and the investors they were looking for you know returns day one, and I was very grateful. Twenty twenty, yeah, we're we're it was everything was looking up, and then yeah, COVID. Our numbers are a little artificial. We we did a couple little shady things during that time just to survive. When the closure occurred, you know, we weren't sure what to make of the future. Like, who shuts down the world? You know, it's like uh, I don't know what to expect <laughs> here. I was able to work with my landlord. I'm like, dude, I I don't know what kind of what kind of revenue I'm gonna be generating this month next month whatever i don't know how long this is going to go for so my landlord's like hey yeah we're all in the same boat he's like let's just put a hold on rent payments and then when you are in a position to resume we'll just resume and then tack on that that balance on the back end of of your lease i was like oh that would be that was that was huge that abatement it saved us again relationship with your landlord is everything i i furloughed all the employees um including myself we were self-distributing and you know my sales reps while they knew like i couldn't afford the salary and technically they were getting their unemployment i was able to pay them commission only so technically still kind of like illegal but it was just something that we had to get through we didn't qualify for ppp because we didn't have a tap room we didn't get any financial assistance from the governments. You know, it was we fell into this gray area. Like we had essential workers, but we didn't have proof of loss of income because we didn't have the tap room that 
everyone lost with all of us furloughed yet we were still working and um again i'm very appreciative of my my staff for doing that they certainly had no legal obligation to do so (laughs) in fact they had the legal obligation not to uh, (laughs) help out but but they did anyways we certainly would not have push through without that and so i did everything i could to make sure that they they were aware of that and how appreciative i was of their donation i still had a mortgage to pay and i wasn't getting commission checks and everyone was buying canning lines so my old employer they approached me and said hey we need help installing these canning lines and i was like well Turns out I'm technically unemployed, so <laughs> I could use, use the money. So what started out as like one one trip a month, that trip would, would cover my, my mortgage. And I was like, okay, great. That's all I need. I don't need to be saving up anything. And then that one trip a month turned into two, then turned into three weeks. And then all of a sudden I'm gone all month. Unfortunately, so 2020 was our sales-wise, our best year and financially our best year. However, it was a little artificial in the sense that we didn't resume paying our lease Mm -hmm. until July of 2020. The employees were furloughed until July and then everything was still um, straight from the brewery. You know, we had limited deliveries and the deliveries that we did do, we we try and save up for like just one or two days worth of work so that we weren't we didn't have employees bouncing around being exposed to something that we didn't really know about but most of it was at home delivery and curbside at the brewery so we didn't have a whole lot of typical expenses that we had in 2019 so on paper 2020 was our our best year but um it was certainly not the most truthful statement and then so 2020, I'm, I'm now essentially working full-time again with my old employer, managing a brewery on the road. So on weekends, I'd, I'd fly home on the weekend, and uh, I'd brew over the course of the weekend. I did have an assistant brewer, so if I couldn't brew, he would brew, but he wasn't packaging, so I had to package everything on weekends. When you were doing this traveling, was that partially because you had to give up your paycheck towards the end or some sort of like agreement there to limit it yeah i yeah i had to i had to get out altogether and and since i didn't i didn't have a role that warranted like a commission check or something there was no means for me to to generate personal income from the brewery yeah i just worked for my old employer full-time at essentially at this point so i would i would be home on the weekends, package everything on the weekends, so then my team could sell that uh, over the course of the week and do it again the next weekend and the next weekend. That's fine and all, but I was I was the manager, you know, and here I am gone. So like when they have it's not a long term solution uh, for sure. Absolutely, no. And so when they have like HR issues or whatever, there's no one to go to because I'm gone. And then when I come back, you know. Again, to their credit, like they didn't want to like bombard me with their own drama, which again I'm appreciative of. But um, but it, well, that's not fair to them. They're just looking to make a paycheck and you know keep their family happy. They don't need to be worried about me. It was hard. What was supposed to just be a temporary solution with my old employer, it just snowballed. We didn't know how long COVID was really gonna prevail. Everyone was still in need of canning lines. So I was just more and more busy. Yeah, it got to the point where it was too distra- it was too too hard and too distracting to 
to continue the brewery. Well, I definitely want to hear about how you guys made the decision to finally close. I read the announcement, which I thought was a cool announcement. But first, let me take a quick break, and I'm not going to let you go without telling me um, some good things. So we're going to come back from the break with some of the wins, and then we'll talk about how we wrapped it up. So be right back. Are you thinking about paying retail for your brewery equipment? Well, since we all came and learned how to make good decisions, I'm going to hit you with some knowledge. So pay close attention. BrewBids is the only badass online marketplace to buy and sell new and used equipment. Maybe you're in the market to buy because you learned how to open a brewery the right way and know that overspending can be fatal. Maybe you're expanding up or down and you know that stainless steel lasts forever, so it's really even better than new. Or maybe you're a guest of the show and you need a place to liquidate all your brewery equipment before the bank comes in and takes it. Doesn't matter. Each of you should be logging on to BrewBids.com right now, creating your account, and connecting with the equipment you need. Get smart, get BrewBids, and get busy making beer. All right, thanks for sticking in. This is going to be the last segment. I know you got to get to the airport. We're going to get you back to your real life. But again, I it, it's always important, I think, to look back and see some of the wins. You, you had mentioned that you guys viewed the canning kind of as a marketing thing. And I will say that I looked at some of your cans and, and clearly it wasn't made with Microsoft Word by your sister's roommate's cousin. So you spent a little time there and I think that you did something right. So I just discuss how did that come about? You probably paid somebody, I imagine, some expense to it, which is hard pill to swallow sometimes. Yeah. So the brewery overall didn't have a theme, you know, so generating brewery names and you know the subsequent artwork um, was a horrible experience. It was just like. You know, we were trying to take inspiration from anything. Some some of the names, you know, they just, I don't know, they just came about on their own. Just like Dadbot? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Dadbot's a little, uh, it, it hits a little too close to home, but... Uh, I can envision the marketing team discussion on that one. So, uh, yeah, I know where it came from. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was... Uh, that was a fun beer. But just so, uh, just to clarify too, on the the label, like a couple of things. One, you did the horizontal break, which is something that, at retail that you know the eyeball thing always catches the eye. Every one of your cans, for the most part, that I looked at, had a cartoonish character, the same basic area right in the middle of that horizontal break, and then they had a, the name in kind of a semicircle across the top. So they're recognizable. Like if I saw your can, I'd know it was yours. And that is definitely something I struggle with for the first. I don't know, nine of my 10 years. And uh, so you did win on that. And I wanted to point that out, I guess, my point. Well, thanks. Yeah. Shelf facing was definitely always focus. And actually, a lot of people would comment that like, hey, yeah, our can art was it, it was all over the place in the sense that we didn't have a theme. I'm like, yeah, we kind of underlying we do have a theme. And if you stack them up side by side on the, on the shelf, you would recognize a pattern. Yeah, the artwork... I, I call her my work wife. She started out as my, my bottle shop manager, and then she moved into sales, and then kind of like a taproom manager, then an event coordinator. She did just about everything in the brewery. She's, a, she's an artist. She did all of her in-house artwork, including the, all the labels. Digital art was not her format, so she had to herself teach what she used. She used Photoshop and she used uh, Illustrator. Yeah, she had to learn those platforms on her own and she ran with it. So we treated that as not as her job. We we did pay her as an artist separate. So, you know, because there was a tremendous amount of work that she put into it and she would um, most often work 
um, work on that artwork at night or over the weekends or whatnot. That was treated as a separate line item. Sometimes we'd have the idea and just build the beer behind the idea. And other times, you know, we're, we're about to can this beer and we're just like, what the hell do we call it? And then it's like, okay, yeah, you come up with, with a name. Oh, shoot. Now we need artwork for it. Yeah, and we did it yesterday. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think she wanted to kill me numerous times because we, we didn't excel with a uh, production schedule by any means. We If there was um, a new trend or um, a retailer had an interest in a certain style or whatever, two weeks later we were we were brewing it. You know, it's like um, we, we just, we stayed fluid. We let our, our flagships and our cores kind of naturally develop. We didn't come out of the gate saying like, yep, this is going to be our, our core beers, take it or leave it. We're just like, yeah, let's... Let's just brew something, put it out there, see if there's enough demand to warrant rebrewing it. Basically, over the five years, five or six beers that organically, which is great because when you're dealing with packaging material, you don't want to commit to, you know, buying a million labels for this IPA and it turns out like no one likes it. <laughs> and you're like, ah, crap, I'm stuck with all this packaging. But on the flip side, since we, we just did like a lot of one offs, Oh my God, I spent a fortune in labels. You can't get the scan uh, the same way? Yeah, no. We were paying upwards to 13 cents a, a label. That was not cheap. <laughs> I did find um, one label manufacturer, and I'm sure some may would do this, but as long as I was ordering that many at one time, I got the scale discount. So I could order the flagship one, the one off one, and still get the same price per label, but it had to be all at the same time. Same size too. Right. And and sometimes we were able to take advantage of that. But again, most times um, we were just brewing and packaging by demand. We we and we didn't know if we were gonna brew that beer again. So we weren't willing to buy like two batches worth of, of the same label. But sometimes we knew like hey hey, it's like, oh hey, this week it's our it's our Schwartz beer. Uh, next week it's our dad bod. Let's just order the two labels together. I was pretty good with that when I was essentially full-time with the brewery. But then once I got on the road, that kind of forecasting, it went by the wayside. So it's like, and that, again, like becoming a remote employee or a remote manager, that was, I mean, it's a nail in the coffin. It's, that is not how you run a brewery. Yeah, it's just too much workload. Well, yeah, and it's just everything, things fall through the cracks. You can't afford to do that when you have minimal margins on your product and it's, it's a volume game. Back to something else you did right. <laughs> Let's talk about the tasting room. Great, and I always yeah. saw pictures online and get a chance to come in it, but from what I saw online, it actually had a really cool look to it and it seemed like you, know, you said it was kind of an afterthought moving into that space or I guess – you have to do it later, but you got years to kind of sort of think about it and plan for it. You did create a unique space with a cool vibe where a lot of other brewers are just going to have you know, something on the walls. The mix of brick, the the type of chairs and seating, the way the bar was set up with an ordering side on the side. I mean, it was definitely thought out. Was, was that all you? Was that all your wife? Was it a combo? Yeah. So uh, that was, I hate to self-tote, but... That was all me. Uh, I did all the finish work in the brewery. The space kind of designed itself, uh, more or less. I, I liked the Chicago Common Brick. Yeah, I wanted to keep that exposed. I did have to put up a partition wall because we wanted some additional storage space. And now I had this giant blank wall. 
well, I have an in-house artist. And she's like, well, let's utilize that wall for monthly art shows. I knew the general flow and how the doors work, basically where a bar was going to be natural and then use the shape of the corner to design the the layout of the bar and again i was working with my landlord as my contractor so he let me do a lot of this work on my own so i did all the finish work built the bar installed the draft system finished the the bathrooms did the the floor tiling wall tiling fixtures we built this uh, barrel wall uh, using just old barrel staves a to help break up sound and then two is just a, a cool like texture textured wall i built that wall early on and that kind of drove kind of like the color palette of the tap room even though i'm obsessed with green my favorite color and like everything in the brewery if i could make it would be green that was, um, that was on my list of questions why the lime green tap handles we can get to that in a minute yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, taking like kind of the, the wood and the, like the reddish hues from the from the oak boards, it just blossomed. I had this wall that it was uh, we built a new bathroom and I had this 14 foot blank wall. And I'm like, this is like, looks terrible. I don't know what to do with it. So I just I just hung barrel staves and made a textured wall. Well, I had extra staves and I had these columns in the middle of our floor. And I was like, well. It'd be kind of cool to build a little bar around these columns. And so like, I took uh, barrel heads, basically cut down the middle, cut out the column diameter, and then um, clamped the barrel heads around the columns as the um, bar top. And then used uh, vertical uh, barrel staves to wrap around the column and just create more of a like a true fixture you know so then i had all you know all these barrel staves everywhere and then i had like this like this half wall that was at the entrance of the bathroom which is really weird because we had tables there and i'm like wow you can just like stare right into the bathroom and someone opens the door uh, like that's not cool so we built this um basically two foot wall off of our our half wall and just used the the barrel staves as slats so that you I don't really see through the wall, but and it gave an uh, space definition. I had plenty of time on my hands. You know, it was COVID. No, nothing was open. So, and I was traveling, but on the weekends, once I was done packaging, I was just working in the tap room, um, cutting down uh, bar tops and installing those. My HVAC contractor, he became a really good friend of mine. So then one weekend, we just slapped my walk-in cooler for the, the tap room together. Just had a few beers with it. <laughs> and uh, I would say I like the I, I like the exposed brick. The exposed brick along with the barrel wall, the, the whole theme took off from there. So then I, you know, I the light fixtures that I used was kind of like more old-timey, something that would accent the bricks. You know, we put lighting behind the bar. To again accent the bricks behind the wall. You know, tried to make it modern yet relaxing. We, you know, we, we used couches um, and, and lounge chairs to just create more of a kind of a coffee seating area vibe. Basically, just a series of high tops. You know, the unfortunate thing about our tap room is we were in the city, so we couldn't, we didn't have any outdoor space that we could utilize. And we need to maximize our profits in the tap room, so we couldn't 
really dedicate like a, like a, a gaming area. Um, we did have a dartboard, we had board games, but you know, we weren't going to have, you know, a shuffleboard or anything, you know, it's, um, pinball machines or anything. It was a bar. It was a bar that we tried to keep just clean and professional so that people felt uh, welcomed and, and neutral enough where families were, were comfortable. I have a young family myself, so we made sure that we had high chairs, we had games for the kids, we had um, coloring books, and, you know, we, we weren't specifically trying to attract kids. But my wife and I, with kids, you know, we don't want to go into a place where we know we're not going to be welcomed. And if the kids aren't comfortable, then we're not going to be able to go because we're just going to be disruptive to everyone. So that was definitely kept in mind. It's a big debate online is like, are you kid friendly or not kid friendly? I say if you want revenue, you better be kid friendly. You know, the kids, we, we made uh, lemonade uh, every week. We had hot water. We had cold brew coffee. You know, not really kid friendly, but <laughs> we we had non-alcoholic options to again keep the kids and non-beer drinkers happy. Because you know, if a party of four shows up, only three of the four are drinking beer. Well, that fourth person is going to be pretty bored, and unless you're truly a rude person, you're going to want to move on and find a place that that is welcoming to everyone in that party. In Illinois, being a production brewery. We could only sell beer, cider, and guest beer. So we couldn't sell wine or spirits, which I would have if we could. Why limit your revenue opportunities? Yeah, universality yeah. is important at that point. The more people you can get in, the better. So talk to me a little about how you had to decide to close. So I know we opened 18, kind of saw a few years of growth, some good profitability in 20. You got the tasting room open finally in 2021. At that point, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like your kind of draft and distribution business struggled a little, but the tasting room took off. And then once you got open about 14 months later, it sounds like um, you ended up having to close. So was that a challenging decision? Was it sort of made for you or like how did that kind of work out? The tap room was, again, it was, it was successful. But by the summer of 2021, we now had a full year's worth of sales numbers from the tap room. The taproom, certainly it paid for its own rent, uh, all the staffing, it was profitable. It was not enough to cover the entire brewing operation because we had another 4,000 square feet where the production was. Um, yeah, it was on the same building, but there were two different leases. Mm-hmm. We had the taproom lease, we had a production lease. The taproom was not enough to cover everything under the roof due to the slowdown in distribution. Now, if our distribution had remained the same, even as it did in 2019, in addition to the taproom, I'd still own a brewery right now. But distribution, it, it just didn't bounce back from COVID. More players came into the game. And then, uh, yeah, the taproom, it just it seemed like it plateaued. And while that plateaued number was solid, it just, it wasn't enough. We, you know, probably February of, um, February of 22, we started losing money. And for the first time we were just like, oh shoot, like, I don't know if I can cover these bills. And it's like, crap, like, like, okay, we sold this entire batch, but I don't have enough money left over to buy ingredients. And that's with you, and, you know, not taking a paycheck and getting it somewhere else, right? Right. I mean, yeah, I had more staff at this point but again the tap room covered their own overhead i did have three sales reps 
a delivery driver and an assistant brewer. I certainly wasn't going to put them through again of layoffs and whatnot. So we, so my investors, you know, we, we threw a little extra money um, as kind of like a stopgap for the summer. And we're just like, you know what? We're just in a winter slump. Once spring hits, things will turn around. They didn't, they didn't. Like Taproom, yes, kept growing, but again, not enough to cover everything. My business partner that represented 37% uh, ownership, he wanted another facility, another tap room. He's like, he's like, well, we know this model works. He's like, well, let's look at another location. Let's do it again. I was all for it, but I didn't have any skin in the game. So like, you know, I can't, <laughs> I can't really go around spending money that isn't mine. <laughs> yeah. When we play with the numbers, you know, and kind of estimating like, oh yeah, well, what would build out be? Fortunately, all these numbers were still very fresh from last year. We did look at the option of opening a satellite location. At the end of the day, like we, we took a vote on for the investors. And we're like, if we're going to do this, like we need more capital. So either the way we structured the, the operating agreement was that um, uh, investors, they couldn't be diluted. Uh, they had first right of refusal. So we couldn't raise capital equity without everyone being on board a super majority on the board. It was my mom who um, she's just like, financially, I, I can't really contribute more. She's like, I, I, I kind of want to, but I, I just, I can't responsibly contribute more. She was, you know, the, the majority shareholder. And she's like, I'm not willing to get diluted. You know, if we move forward with this, like my money's tied up in this and yeah, it's very personal and I get it. I'm not looking to, create additional hardship for you. We knew we were at a stalemate. Like we weren't going to raise additional capital utilizing the same ownership structure that we had. And and we knew we couldn't uh, make ends meet status quo. So I don't know. We kind of saw the writing on the wall with the market and be like, you know what? This isn't going to turn around. Like we're not naive enough to think that, you know, we're just in a, a two year slump. Things are going to be all gravy next year. It's just none of the numbers. Everything was in decline. Honestly, it became it was just a reasonable decision to close. Just cut our losses, you know, quit the bleeding, and have the opportunity of selling what we could sell at the best price possible before you either want to be like the first one to the market or definitely the first one to leave the market. You don't necessarily want to be the last guy standing. That's kind of just how we felt that we knew we weren't going to be the only ones in the area to be closing. And, you know, we wanted to sell the facility as turnkey. So we need, we need to act before other opportunities opened up for potential buyers. It, it was honestly, it was, uh, it was a difficult, it was a difficult process to go through. Like it was very emotional. However, the day that we actually just just came to the conclusion, yes, we are going to close. Best day of my life. <laughs> it was so much anxiety and stress. Just, I, yeah, it, it's really hard to describe that feeling. I've definitely oh. been there. I, I wrote a blog post about when I went through it. I think more and more of the people I interview that that ultimately is what it is. The frustrating part is that you, you know, like I, I tell people all the time, I don't interview idiots that made shitty beer and ugly packaging because we know that story. And the reality is you made some, you had some of the best reviews I've ever seen. Um, as far as like, even just the tasting room itself, the business overall, um, you know, good, solid, you know, beers and reviews. I looked a lot of them up on social media, 
So it wasn't the beer. Clearly, you can understand what happened. And you just get to that point where you're just like, you're struggling so hard. And you're like, what the fuck am I doing wrong? And I don't know. Overall, I think what I'm finding out is that it isn't so much that everyone's doing wrong things as opposed to just, you know, there's not a great pathway forward for profitability. So that's where the relief comes in. You're just like, God damn it. Finally, I got a minute. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tough to go through, but, um, you know, I'm glad I did for me still staying in the industry and helping other people expand or open their breweries. It gives me a tool in my toolbox to share with, with these customers and be like, Hey, look, it gets ugly. Like watch your cash. I don't know. Imparting whatever I could impart with whatever, whoever customer is willing to listen. I mean, you know, when you're starting up, you don't necessarily listen to everyone because <laughs> you're, you're blindsided by the just go ahead, you know, mentality. You're like, no, we're going to, you know, this is going to be great. You know, everyone's going to love us. We're going to succeed. You should see my spreadsheet in three months. I'm going to be rich. And then it's like, yeah. Um, yeah, about that. <laughs> so what do you want the legacy of urban brew labs to be? Like, what is that? Like, where does it sit in the lexicon of the American brewing industry in your mind? You know, it, it was a, um, uh, it is a community focused brewery we weren't trying to take over the world we wanted to be that neighborhood brewery that everyone was welcomed and happy to come to uh, after work uh have their family parties at we wanted to know every customer's birthdays um their their anniversaries uh it was a very personal experience for us and we loved it i wouldn't change it for the world i i've I've met so many great people. I still stay in contact with all these great people. At the end of the day, you can make the best product that you can possibly make. There's just so many variables that come to play with the business. Location, timing, market situations, um, world events. You can't plan for everything. You just have to, I don't know, you, you have to be flexible enough to adapt um, as needed. Be resourceful. Really just try and keep as much cash as possible that is you, you can't survive it oh well uh i i hope we i don't know i hope we kept some of the um kind of older styles i hope we kept them alive you know and kept people interested in them you know not just have all different ipas on tap you know we we had the porters we had the blonde ales we had ambers we had a diverse uh, array of beer styles going forward i think breweries just opening up a tap room it's it's not gonna it's not gonna work you have to have something that inspires people to to come to your brewery and to want to stay um whether that is you know having food having uh, live events, uh, having different partnerships. I don't know. I don't know. Obviously, I don't know the magic answer because I still have a burger. I think the days of just solely opening a tap room and voila, like people are just going to come and you're going to be successful. I think they're over. People just want other things. Look, I think the generation of where craft beer was was um, new and exciting. I think it's aging out. The new 21 year olds right now. They grew up with craft beer. Um, it's nothing new to them, nothing exciting. It's just that's what was in their fridge, in their parents' fridge growing up. They went to breweries for their birthday parties, and maybe they hated it. I don't know. It's uh, I, I think we are seeing the, the new generation of, of consumers, and it's just not – they're not as excited as about a, a new brewery as maybe five, ten years ago 
they were. Well, I know you're not out uh, of the industry yet, so you may have a different answer than some people, but what are you going to miss most about owning a brewery? The people. I, I love sharing the the first pint with with the customers and our employees. You know, when we created a, created a new beer and it was like first time tapping, who knew? Like, you know, people might like it, people might hate it. But when you share that first pint, like, it's exciting. Like, it's, 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 uh, it creates a little anxiety. You're like, oh my God, I hope they like it. I hope they like it. And then when they do, you're just like, like, ah, uh, it's, it's, it's affirming and it, uh, it makes you want to do it again. Yeah. Just, just seeing people enjoy your product is, I don't know, it, that is, it's such a, a f- strange experience that not everyone gets to experience. You know, if, if you're an accountant, who's excited about your numbers, you know, <laughs> like, uh, you know, you're not making a product for consumption. It, that is, there's something very re- rewarding about that. I just, I, I, lo- I, I think people, people are the, is the, the sole reason to open and operate a brewery. You know, it's, yeah, uh, yeah. I guess that's my answer. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's also a big piece of why so many of us hang on as long as we do is that, you know, the ne- whatever the next career path for you is going to be is not going to be as rewarding as that, even though it probably will be more rewarding financially. But uh, to that end, so your website is still up, which is not something you always see almost a year later. Last question, I'm going to get you out of here. Are you going to do it again? Hell no. Uh, I'm glad I did it. Yes, I'm going to remain involved in the industry for the foreseeable future in whatever capacity I can. But being a day-to-day owner and operator of a brewery, hell no. That is, it's a level of stress that I've experienced. Don't need to do it again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's not to stop me from someday becoming a partner. I don't know. But the day of paying bills and <laughs> cleaning out, you know, tanks and stuff, no, I'm, I'm done. It's played its course. You know, I might, I might be a, uh, a decent brewer, but not necessarily a great business owner. So maybe that is the um, biggest lesson from all this is I'm not the manager that I should be in order to run a brewery. Yeah, man, it takes both and it doesn't, it doesn't work without both of them. Well, you mentioned that you're still in the industry, so I will link your contact info for all those people who want to purchase equipment. Still quite a few of them. I, I see business plans all the time. How can they get in okay. touch with you and how, or how would you want them to reach out? Again, I'm not sales. But I can direct people. Plug the company. More Who is it? The Lotus Beverage Alliance. It's based in Lincoln, Nebraska, but we have offices in uh, New York, Portland, Denver. If they want to just reach out to me for brewery help or whatnot, uh, they can reach out to my personal email. That's uh, james at brokenpaddleinstalls.com. I do a little consulting because of my position at Lotus, I can no longer charge for my consultation as a as a non-compete um, issue. I'm happy to help, of course, free of charge. Yeah, again, just looking to help the next guy. If anyone has any, any bring or business questions, uh, certainly shoot them my way. All right, well, we'll do. Like I said, I'll link it, and if anyone reaches out to me, I'll send them your way. Like right. I said in the beginning, you had a unique story, so I absolutely appreciate you sharing it. I think it shows some different angles and until i stop seeing that i will continue to do this show because that's one of the most important fun parts is learning new things from everybody so thanks for everything you shared and uh, taking the time today i know i kept you a little long so no hey i'm I'm glad we finally got this uh scheduled i'm sorry about all the delays but i don't know where i'm gonna be in two hours it's crazy (laughs) no uh thanks for having me and um yeah whatever i can do to help all right no i appreciate it 
hey, where are you kids buying your grains? You know, back in the day, we only had two options, and each of them knew it. When there isn't any competition, things like customer service and aggressive pricing just don't make a bit of sense to the big guys' bottom lines. But Brewery Direct has given lots of fucks about their customers since the day they sold their first bag of grain back in 2016. They sourced grains for quality and grains for price. And as an extension of Johnson Brothers Bakery Supply, their access to unique ingredients and brewing adjuncts is simply unparalleled. And now, with warehouses from Washington to New Jersey, you've got no excuse for an overpriced or unimaginative grain bill. You can't make great beer from any old bullshit, and Brewery Direct knows that. They have great prices on great grains and offer great service to great breweries of all sizes. Oh, did I mention the free shipping? Check them out at BreweryDirect.com or just type BreweryDirect into all of those social medias you seem to like so damn much. Thanks a fuckload for sticking around, guys. What my guests and I do here wouldn't be possible without your curiosity. And balancing the toxic positivity in the crapper industry with a hefty dose of reality could not be more important. If you're thinking about starting a brewery, I honestly wish you the best of luck. If you've already got one and you're trying to decide if you should keep it, I wish you the best of love. Maybe you shuttered or sold your beer business and you're well into the next positive and hopeful stage of your life. In that case, I'll buy your beer seven. I'm always on the hunt for great stories of other breweries that have felt the sting of struggle. I'm always open to answering questions and helping any way that I possibly can. So feel free to reach out. Email is easiest at freeplaykelly. Oh, and if you're inclined to support the show, there are a few ways you can go about that. None better than sharing your favorite episode with your favorite friend, followed very closely by buying a copy of my 2020 book, How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. And last but never least, you can support the businesses that have supported the show. I truly hope this show has made you think, made you feel, and made you better at your career. And of course, I hope it's taught you a little something about how not to start a damn brewery. Free play. Media. Media.